0: influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros and Bloomberg experts along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. And we check the markets. S-I-V-P. No, B. S-I-V-B, right? That's the ticker yes, for... Boy, yep. yep, and uh, you go pop that in the terminal. They're still not trading. They're and, still
2: halted for volatility, yeah.
1: And that's not, that's not bueno. So we're looking at this stock right now not trading. I want to get a sense of, is this... How much is this is SVB specific or yeah. how much is it broader to some of the banking system in general, maybe on the regional side? And so when we want to talk regional banks, there's only one person to talk to. That's Herman Chan. He's a senior analyst. He covers U.S. regional banks and fintech for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. He covers SVB. Uh, Herman, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, give us your sense of what's happening at SVB. And specifically, I think people ultimately want to get to a, a sense of Is this more SVB specific Mm -hmm. given their business, their customers, or is it maybe a little bit more endemic in the regional banking space? What's your thought?
3: Sure, Paul. Um, We do think it's more specific to SVB. SVB is being affected by a classic bank run, uh, which is wrapped in a tech bubble, which formed during the pandemic period. Startups during that period were raising a boatload of capital from venture capital companies and doing IPOs at extravagant valuations And that bubble is popping so In effect you're seeing deposit outflow because of the tech bubble releasing That's affecting SIVB specifically because they specifically cater to the startup community and Silicon Valley
2: walk us through then kind of how we got here from a yield perspective because my understanding and correct me if i'm wrong Mm -hmm. keep me honest here is that a lot of these banks i mean they're lending for the long term correct and this is a bank that did not diversify in the way that say some of the other bigger banks would have
3: Sure. So in a lot of ways, SVB was a victim of their own success because of the deposit inflows that happened during the pandemic. Billions of dollars came in and they invested all of uh, a lot of that liquidity into securities when interest rates were zero. So we're thinking about yields on that investment portfolio, about one and a half, two percent. Now with rates where they are today, the value of those securities has declined dramatically. And you, there's a duration mismatch with deposits coming out and your your securities are sticky on the balance sheet. So uh, that has necessitated a bid to sell these securities to inject some liquidity onto the balance sheet and the market was spooked by this.
1: What do the regulators do here, Herman? Mm -hmm. I mean, mean, you know, CNBC is reporting that uh, SVB tried to raise some capital, failed, now looking to sell themselves. How do you think this plays out? Do the regulators step in? Does uh, an, another bank step in and buy SVB? How do these typically play yeah. out?
3: So the best case scenario is SVB somehow finds to raise this capital and assuages the fears that's going on in the marketplace. If that doesn't happen, then most likely the, the regulators need to step in and, and force a sale to a larger institution that is viewed to be more stable.
2: Well, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that SVB is actually a member of the S&P 500. And that is a really Oof, big deal when you is, talk about. Thank you for pointing out. Yeah, I didn't it, know that. Okay. Uh, a lot of people don't. It's pretty interesting because, and frankly, full full uh, admitting everything, I didn't know that either until a couple of days ago. But I, I think what it speaks to is this idea of, is this is some sort of repeat of the 2008 kind of Lehman Brothers mm-hmm. moment. A lot of people bracing over the weekend to see if it is. Do you think it is? Any parallels there?
3: The hope is that there's the contagion risk is stable, and, and we see this as really a SVB specific issue. Uh, we talked about it in our research that you can find on the terminal about SVB's large unrealized losses on their portfolio, and no other bank in our coverage universe has that same unrealized loss that they're sitting on. So these paper losses can become economic losses if deposits run out of the balance sheets. And that's what the fear is with SVB. The hope is that deposits within regional banks stay a bit more stable going forward because they don't have these issues with the startups burning through cash.
1: Who might be a a potential buyer? SVB do you think
3: yeah it's it's probably the larger institutions if we're talking about larger regionals we could definitely see somebody like uh, PNC or Truist some Canadians could be interested like an RBC Um, and then you've got if if that doesn't happen then you can lean on the largest banks in the US so we're talking about you know uh, B of A and and JP Morgan
2: and what about the how much are they really going to be paying for it? I mean, no one really wants to touch this bank, I imagine, right afterwards. And I believe their stock, I mean, a couple of days ago, the stock was at like 266 or something like that. Shares are now, I think, below 60. How much do you pay for SVB?
3: Well, yeah, uh, SVB, unfortunately, is not in a situation to, to leverage um, their, their strong franchise outside of what's going on today. So it, it would be, uh, unfortunately, a price that is not um, That would be unhelpful for existing shareholders.
1: All right, let's step back from SVB and look at your coverage more broadly. Regional banks, um, how are they situated here in this, you know, like a rising interest rate environment? I thought that was good for banks, net interest margin. But I look at the S&P Regional Bank Index, 52 week low here. So talk to us about the environment for regional banks right now.
3: Right. Um, So fundamentally, things are strong. Um, Profitability has increased in 2022 because of the rising rate environment that you talked about. So margins have expanded. Credit quality is still very benign as consumers are still paying off their loans and, cons- and commercial customers are really healthy. Um, what's really happening is there, there's a focus on uh, deposits and liquidity risk, uh, which is, is the name of the game these days. And also the um, the paper losses on the investment securities where all these banks bought a, a lot of investment securities during the pandemic when rates were zero. There's
2: a headline here crossing the Bloomberg terminal, Janet Yellen saying that the Treasury is monitoring a few banks amid issues at uh, SVB, so something that we are going to keep our eyes on. But I want to really kind of harp back on a word you used, liquidity. I think it's a concern we had about six months ago uh, when the Federal Reserve had just started their tightening cycle. Is liquidity something separate from SVB that banks should be worried about here?
3: Um, yes, I think, and nobody wants to be in SVB shoes right now. So, what likely will happen going forward is the banks are going to pay up more for deposits to keep their depositors in their balance sheets. So, you're going to see rising deposit costs to keep deposits stable.
1: Where are we in terms of, I like private credit is something that's become a, a, an amazing growth business. It's fascinated me. How do the regional banks view the private credit business as as a competitive threat?
3: Right. Um, So the private creditor uh, companies have come in, and and frankly, regional banks have ceded share. So that's one of the reasons why we think regional bank credit quality will hold in 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 the upcoming pending downturn, because uh, regional banks have really de-risked their balance sheets during the credit crisis. And you've seen new entrants that come in, like private credit, BDCs, that have taken share from from the typical regional banks. and, And- which has helped the regionals lower uh, risk on their loan books.
1: All right, good stuff. Herman Chan, uh, senior analyst. He covers the US regional banks and FinTech for Bloomberg Intelligence. Specifically, he covers a Silicon Valley bank. So he is our absolute in-house go-to expert on SVB and the, the news today that, uh, again, the stock has halted pending uh, news. Uh, it was indicating down about 60% after losing 60% of its value yesterday. Some real ongoing concern issues. jobs market's solid i mean any way you look at it people that want to get a job are getting a job we had some good jobs number today carol schleif joins us she's a chief um, uh cio of BMO family office uh, located in minneapolis uh a great town uh, i love minneapolis maybe not in february or january <laughs> but otherwise a great town carol thanks so much for joining us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio you saw the jobs numbers today how do you think this Federal Reserve is gonna is gonna react and, and, and what do you tell your clients?
4: You know, the difficulty for the Fed and for investors today is they really wanted clarity out of this jobs number and they got more confusion because parts of it were strong, parts weren't as strong, and so looking through that, so now we're gonna be waiting breathless for the CPI numbers next <laughs> week and each bit of data. So I think the Fed will they chairman paul told us earlier this week they'll take it in totality so there's a lot of other factors to look at but you're you're right. The overarching is that it's a very strong jobs market. People can get jobs if they want them. We saw some interesting things going on in the construction markets, not so much some of the manufacturing, but construction. And it plays into one of the themes that we've been talking about a lot, which was is this industrial renaissance. But the Fed has a lot to parse through. And I think they're going to look at how much stress is already being placed on the credit markets, too, and what's going on in the fringes there. And and um, not wanting to disturb things. So it was really interesting watching the futures market go from earlier in the week, price in a two-thirds expectation of a 50 basis point, and now we're back down to about a third.
2: Yeah, well, in 24 hours, we went from 50 (laughs) to 25 (laughs) instead of
4: wild pricing. Is the market getting that wrong? I'm not sure. I I think what the market's getting wrong is they're paying too much attention to all the short-term stuff and not stepping back and looking at, overarchingly we've got a very solid economy going on here we're trying to pull some of the inflation the post-pandemic inflation out of it and level that off that's been fitful i heard some commentator had official last night talking about there was this misperception that it was going to be a really even path to bring it down and it's not it's fitful and that's what we're seeing we're seeing it in the data we're seeing it everything else but the market is missing the fact that you still do have a lot of strength under the economy you've got a lot of spending teed up in some really important areas that will help stabilize things intermediate and longer term and you do have strong growth globally as well Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of central banks there that have backed off their their increases or went to pause for a bit. So So, given
1: that you know rising interest rates are not so good for risk uh, assets yet underlying economic activity remains pretty darn decent what are some of the sectors in the equity market that you guys are uh, more open to?
4: I think the interesting thing is is if you look broader in the equity markets there's places in industrials and materials and manufacturing which haven't been at the top of the heap in terms of s p sectors for years and so looking at some of those because when you actually parse through the last round of quarterly earnings reports there was a lot of record backlogs in some of that the plant and equipment we're putting out there the manufacturing heck even when i was on the interstate waiting to get to the airport a couple days ago, I've never in 40 years of commuting that interstate seen as many plant parts Mm -hmm. out there and road construction parts, even though we're a hundred inches of snow in Minneapolis, they're still, (laughs) they're still queuing up for plant for road construction all, all the way around. And so the industrial sectors, the more there's an interesting way to play it. And some of the tech names will play, in this newer environment too, where, where we're rebuilding in the, in, the infrastructure. We're gonna be putting cybersecurity and um, really sophisticated artificial intelligence in places. The migration to the web continues. You'll be putting sensors in all those plants. So there's ways to play it, but, but they're a different way than, than we've seen, I think, over the last decade. Are you worried at all about this
2: SVB news? How are you processing that?
4: I think we're processing it the the bigger broader we're definitely watching for cracks in the in the credit market it's important to remember that we're not in the same environment we were in 08 no 9 in that the subsequent to that there were a lot of rules and regulations for the banks in general though but we're watching for pressure because credit markets and the access to credit is one of the first places you get it and you've had the fed pulling pulling money supply out you know for the last couple of decades basically we've had central banks around the world putting putting liquidity into the system now they're pulling it out so that's not going to be a nice linear process either so we're processing it very carefully by spending a lot of time talking to the managers and the and the folks that we have that are watching those markets to see if there's other signs of stress in those markets and so far it's pretty orderly.
1: What are you guys saying about the fixed, fixed income market? We have a big, big moves in the in the, in the yield curve today, the two-year off 25 basis points. But it was just a couple of days ago, you could park your money in two-year paper and get 5% uh, return. How are you guys thinking about fixed income, which had such a bad, bad year in 2022?
4: Yeah, we, we have had a lot of clients that have, um, our recommendation has been to focus on the core fixed income and to stay shorter on the curve. We've in specific, not even gone out to the belly of the curve or farther out because of that volatility that you're seeing. You've seen that 10 year round trip in Mm -hmm. big jumps between last year and this year. And the unique thing is, is for a lot of clients that are more nervous about markets in particular, this is the first time in a decade and a half you've been paid to sit in cash. Well, speaking of that,
2: I mean, it's the real yield that we're really looking at, which brings me to just the benchmark. note. it's pretty simple. We were at 4%. I want to say 48 hours ago. Again, right. the repricing here right. is, is kind of mind boggling. Now we're at 369 on the 10 year now. It feels like a lot of that is simply coming from perhaps the intraday flight to safety. that you right. got off the SVB and uh, arguably the Fed repricing. But
4: how high can the 10 year go if the Fed still has some room to run? Ooh, I don't think we necessarily put Pagan number on there. I'm, we'd be hard pressed to say it's going to go much higher than it has in here and watching it pull back. That 4% seems to offer an awful lot of resistance if you will, in terms of hitting that level and coming back. But we're going to, you know, it's really interesting that you could build out a one and a half or two-year treasury ladder and yield close to 5% on that. And the nice thing is, is then you've got the opportunity every three months when something matures to say, do I put it back into that market? Do I keep it in cash? Do I put it farther out on the curve?
1: Carol, that 60-40 portfolio that a lot of us grew up (laughs) on just got crushed last year and really was called into question here. At BMO, at the family office that you guys um are at what how do you talk to your clients about just portfolio construction these days
4: we we are in the camp where we don't think the 60 40 portfolio is dead it did it didn't perform last year and you have to pull last year and look at it in context of it's been 80 or 90 maybe a hundred years since you've had both stocks and bonds down double digits in the same year yep that's hopefully a historical anomaly that we're not going to see for another 80 90 100 years but we're expecting more normalized sorts of returns out of both stocks and bonds this year. And we do expect that fixed income, especially on the shorter end, has seen the bulk of that volatility You're seeing inflation start to level off. And so having You know, there's a lot of reasons why people want to own fixed income, not the least of which is for current income, but it's also to provide that stability in the portfolio. And we still think it serves that purpose. You just have to be careful. It's one of the reasons why laddered portfolios or having managers that run laddered portfolios and can be nimble going between taxable and and, uh, non-taxable makes a lot of sense. All right, 30 seconds here. Walk us through the case for buying tech at the moment. Ooh, I'll get through the case for buying tech. I think at the margin, there are pieces of tech that make sense to to fully write off or go full-barreled into a particular industry is in our style it's part and parcel of a diversified portfolio and there's places within tech as I mentioned there's sensors there's artificial intelligence there's movement to the cloud all of those plays so having either good managers or names that are diversified in their own portfolios and how they're dealing with it because we're not going to walk away we're not going back to the green green um t-bar paper that i started my career on we're definitely going to keep deploying technology
1: all right great stuff carol schleif joins us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio carols the cio of bmo family office uh, located in lovely minneapolis uh, minnesota again i always talk about milwaukee being pound for pound maybe yeah. the one of the best towns for money management minneapolis is not far behind they got a lot of smart uh, people there, uh, all the ex-IDS and Alliance folks uh, all over town. So uh, some good stuff there. Kyle Schleif uh, joining us. The jobs market is just remains incredibly resilient. Let's get the, a look down under the hood. We can do that with Tom Gibbo. He's a founder and CEO of LaSalle Network. LaSalle Network is a national staffing, recruiting, uh, and culture firm focused on temporary and contract staffing as well as direct hire search. Tom, blow away number here. Tell us what we need to know. Can I get a heck yeah? Yes yeah, I mean, on. three hundred
5: and eleven thousand jobs. We're having the same conversation every month. We are. I mean what we've got what we've got is an economy that companies still believe that there is uh, momentum moving forward. We're seeing IT is driving it, healthcare is driving it, we're still seeing people spending money. They, people have, while while individual debt and credit is, is very high, there's also billions of dollars in people's home equity that they haven't tapped into that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And this economy is going to keep going. And then we have the infrastructure package that's finally going to get started going this year. And I think we're going to have a really good 2023.
2: But it's still the headline number is still very hot. This is our 11th payrolls number uh, that has beat expectations and not by a small margin. I understand that the wages are coming down. And that's why you see the market uh, perhaps not taking this as as much of a negative as they have in the past. But I'm confused about the trajectory here. The tra- trajectory is not getting better. Does this kind of lead to some sort of very fast uh drop in jobs very well, what, quickly. What do, you, what do you mean
5: the trajectory isn't getting better? We keep adding jobs every month.
2: Right, so for the Federal Reserve, that's still an extremely tight labor market.
5: Oh, 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 oh the, the tr- correct, correct, for what the Federal Reserve wants. Well, I think what it shows is, is all those years that we were running this economy on zero interest rates, we didn't need to. and And that was really the big, it's more about what the mistakes we made than the mistakes we are making. And what this is showing is that interest rates can go up another 50 basis points or 70. You know, eventually what's gonna happen is we're gonna get to a point and then the, the market will slow and jobs will go down and then they'll go, oh, we knew this was gonna happen. Well, <laughs> we didn't know it was gonna happen in that time frame. Eventually there is the straw that breaks the camel's back and this is what you get when you go into a soft landing. A hard landing would be adding 150 basis points. They're not doing that. The market is allowing it to happen at this pace because it can handle it, you know. It's funny when the market dictates what the naysayers want it to do; they're unhappy. When the market goes counter, they're ha- unhappy. It is. It's every once in a while you got to look at things and say we're in a pretty darn good situation. The market's really, really strong. The Fed is trying to appease a soft landing because inflation is really high. But what we've seen is gas prices didn't continue on that trajectory. People aren't talking about the cost of eggs as much anymore. And as interest rates go up, we're starting to see people realize, everyday people realize that things aren't so bad. And eventually they're going to stop talking about working remotely and all these nonsense issues. And we're going to ease into a normal standard economy that has some good months and some bad months. And it'll settle down for a period of 9 to 18 months like it always does. And then we'll get a huge bull market that'll come in 25 through
1: 29. Hey, Tom, help me out with this jolts number. I I have a hard time figuring out, you know, it came in at 10.8 million or something like that. And before the pandemic, it was 5 million, 6 million kind of on average. What are are all these people doing? Well, I think it it, it, it was funny. I I just had this conversation with a
5: group of CEOs. If we took away every unprofitable gig gig, platform so um uber and lyft and instacart and all these companies that don't make money and DoorDash and all those people were back into the job force i think you'd have that number be extremely low what we've seen is is we've seen workers who were middle income 40 to 80 thousand dollar a year people that have said you know what i don't want to be uh, stuck in an office doing these things all the time. I want more flexibility even if I'm making the same amount of money or working more hours. They're doing job share and they're, they're they're piecing it together. and And that's really the challenge. I believe that's what's happened. There's two things. There's that and then there's the lack of immigrants coming into this country. Not just south of the border but also people coming in from other countries to do some of the technical jobs. If we can loosen up some of the immigration stuff, I think we're going to see a lot of our problems solved as well.
2: And what about the wage stuff? Does that include wages?
5: Yeah, you know, wages is an interesting issue, right, because it categorizes all of the, the, the different levels together uh, for the most part. And, and there's such a big difference between salaried and hourly and how that plays into the scheme of things. We have the municipalities that were were raising minimum wages before COVID and then uh during COVID and then when you had the hourly explosion from Target and, and Amazon and Walmart and that stuff that that, that falsely increased the the hourly wages or believed to be falsely. So I think that those numbers aren't accurate either. I think we focus as a society probably too much on the B L F wage numbers because that's really market dictated and when there's low unemployment those numbers are going to go up no matter what. If companies need to fulfill it, so I don't. I don't worry about the wage and the participation rates. Really, the interesting battle that this country's been focused on for a long time, and until we have something solved about daycare and about unemployment and social benefits like that, we're not going to see an increase. Of more than a half a percent or so
1: of that. Hey Tom, you mentioned uh, immigrants, legal and illegal. What are the the you know the the hirers, the hiring managers that you talk to? I mean, how big of a problem is that? Because it just seems like a lot of the you know job openings I see are ones that would typically be filled by immigrants. Is it, and is there any sense that that is going to loosen in any time going forward? Well, the problem is we don't have the, the, the Americans who are out of work or can't find
5: jobs, or the skill gaps have passed them by. They don't want to do the job, and and the, the 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 media, not trying to paint that picture, but has painted this thing that we're the service level country, and those jobs are, are 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 not great jobs. And so now, what used to be done either by by Eastern European immigrants coming over here or or people from South America or Central America or Africa or different continents coming over here. And, and the laws are so tight that we can't do that. And people say, oh, we're going to have the New Deal revolution. Well, guess who built this country in the New Deal? Immigrants. <laughs> immigrants. So if you're going to get trillions of dollars in infrastructure package and you think that it's not going to be immigrants that are going to build this thing and we're trying to stop it, we're not repeating history in the good way. We're creating our own, and that's a negative for the, the country and the economy. I think we have a real problem there.
2: Tom, I want to go big picture for a moment again and talk about some of the intangibles, things that you can't really quantify, things like paid sick leave, for example, or uh, maternity leave or things like that. How do you like factor that in to your job's view?
5: Well, I think when you, you know, there, there's a certain, we're, we're always going to have population uh, and, and reproduction, right? So you're always going to have maternity leave and, and sometimes paternity leave and, and different things along those lines. The challenge is, is do, fa- it, it's not always do people want to reenter the workforce after having a baby. The question is, do families want to have uh somebody else raising their children and that is a social issue not an economics or a job issue and people always want to focus on that because oh what's the maternity leave but the real answer is does the family want the 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 mom or the dad to re-enter the workforce at a full-time capacity and that's not always the case but that gets skipped over to say well we need to have better leave but the real question is do people want that? In a perfect world, not everybody wants to come back and work after having a baby. And we've got to realize for society that sometimes you you do it because you need the money, and sometimes you do it because you want the career growth. And we just have this—we're in this inflection point as a society that some people think careers and work and satisfaction from that are negative and bad. And I don't agree on that. I'm not signing up for that philosophy. You guys know from having me on every month <laughs> is that work, work. And the sense of accomplishment that we get as human beings, if you enjoy what you do, helps drive the human spirit and makes the family life that much better.
1: All right. Always a broad view of the labor market. We always appreciate that. Tom Gimbel, he's the founder and CEO of LaSalle Network.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. All right, let's talk
1: about rates here. What is this Federal Reserve going to do here um, we had a big, big jobs print here today. We we're waiting on CPI. Uh, the question is 25 basis points, 50 basis points. Do they cut at some point uh, in 2023? Let's check in with Priya Misra, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Security. She's got an opinion. So Priya, we saw the good jobs print today. Any takeaway for you as to how it may uh, impact the Federal Reserve?
6: Sure. So I think the jobs market's strong. I mean, wages came in a little weaker than expected, but a 311,000 number after the 500 so that we had last month is telling you that the labor market's strong, it's tight. Even though wages were a little bit weaker, you know, the year-over-year wages are running high. So I think the labor market's strong. And what that tells me is that the Fed is going to keep hiking. Now, Chair Powell earlier this week brought up the idea of going high at a faster clip. I don't know if this report um, you know, pushes them to hike 50. I think we're waiting for CPI for that. But I think hi- hiking to a 550, 575, I think that uh, is our base case. So they're going to have to keep hiking because it's hard to see inflation get back to 2% with the labor market as tight as it, it is running uh, currently.
2: Priya, let's talk about the trade here. It felt like earlier in the week, uh, the trade du jour was flatteners, and you saw that inversion in the twos, tens get to, I think, negative 110 at one point. That quickly turned around as we saw this kind of repricing for 50 versus 25. What does that mean for the 10-year yield? 373 on that note. Do we get sustainably above 4
6: I don't. I mean, I, can we get there? We did last week um, in a short period of time. Knee jerk. Can we get above four? We can, but I think it's. I think Treasuries are cheap. Anything above 375. So we're right at that level. I think is um, not going to be sustained because the stronger the economy is today, I think the Fed has to keep rates uh, or take rates to more restrictive levels and then keep it there for longer. The greater the odds are of a hard landing, and the 10-year should be pricing in you know, a longer term view. And if we have a hard landing next year and the Fed's cutting rates, I think a 10 year close to 4% is going to look very cheap. So I don't think we should sustain um, close to 4% 10 year rates. I mean, even if they go 50 or they go 25, I think as long as uh, the Fed is staying on the path of uh, you know continuing to hike, I know people tend to just want to stay away from bonds at that point. I think that's when you're supposed to be buying further out the curve bonds you're protecting against recession risks
1: priya what's the the thinking about i mean there's there's a school of thought out there that says the fed either has gone too far or runs the risk of going too far that in fact you know given that 70 percent of this u.s economy is service-based raising interest rates really doesn't affect you know the price of food that much for example um how do, how do you think about that is that does the fed in fact run the risk of going too far
6: I think they're already restrictive okay. and they're not ending right now. So I think they're going to take rates even more restrictive. I hear your point that they can't move lots of prices, but they can and they will slow the economy. The you know the inflation is a very broad based uh, metric right now. Across the board, there's rise in prices. So how the Fed is going to have to bring inflation down, especially because it can't control a lot of the other parts of inflation, would be to slow the labor market down. I think it's the intended consequence of fed tightening is to tighten financial conditions weaken the economy impact consumer spending and then those inflation numbers start to come down i keep being told why interest rates don't matter anymore no they matter they matter to some parts of the economy a lot more than others and so we're seeing the interest sensitive sectors slow down i think with enough of time the economy i think needs time not more hikes but we're going to get more hikes from the fed i think later this year you'll see a more broad based impact of these rate increases across uh, across the economy
2: Freya, are cuts a 2023 story or a 2024 story
6: you know cuts is going to be really tricky because it needs inflation somewhere close to three percent i mean i know the fed says two percent is their target but i think if inflation gets closer to three they can somewhat take a victory lap. But it also needs the unemployment rate, I think, closer to five. So for the for your question, for 23, you have to have a huge increase in the unemployment rate for cuts to be in the Fed's thinking. So we are in the 24 rate cuts. In fact, we have the first rate cut only in March of 24. But then we have very aggressive rate cuts because once mm. the unemployment rate is close to four, I think the Fed won't be shy. They'll be cutting at 50, cutting quickly to try and bring some accommodation into the uh in, into the market
1: on the CPI print we're expecting on Tuesday uh, the consensus on a month-to-month growth is 0.4 percent it's a little bit lower than the prior month 0.5 percent what What are you guys looking for at um, at your shop
6: we're actually looking for point five because okay. some of the goods inflation related decline seems to be reversing especially with used car prices and some of the other things like shelter core services X shelter all that is staying strong so we have a point five which is why I think that 50 basis point hike in March is very much alive because 0.5 is going to be much stronger, same pace as last month. I think there's going to be a big debate at the Fed whether they go 50.
2: And what about the two year yield, Priya? How high or low do we go on the two year?
6: Yeah, I think the two year is close to capping out around five percent, um, but you know the risk is not risk reward is not great in the front end because if you get a 0.5 on CPI, actually our forecast, you see the labor market strong and some of the financial contagion fears slow down, the Fed can keep hiking and can push out the market can push out the timing of cuts, so the two year can sell off more than that 5%. That's why I prefer being further out the curve. I think risk reward is better because I don't see a break above four really sustained basis. But a break above five on twos is possible if the right. you know the data is strong because this fed is very data dependent
1: yes it is all right priya uh, we really appreciate uh, your time priya misra managing director global head of rate Thank strategy you. at td securities before that she was doing this rates things at bank of america merrill lynch and then before that lehman brothers so lots of experience uh, looking at the rates looking at the fed and again as priya said this is a fed that is uh, data dependent we've got a lot of data for this Federal Reserve to parse. Markets have been kind of all over the place here today, uh, trying to digest economic data and the better than expected uh, uh, non-farm payrolls came in uh, pretty strong. And then on the other side, you got a bank, the 16th largest bank in the United States by assets. It's now gone under. You know, that does not happen every day. So investors are trying to put all that together. We want to check in with a professional. And to do that, we check in with Chance Fanukin, CIO and partner at Oxbow Advisors. So Chance, kind of a wild day today with lots of information for investors to, to kind of parse. What's your takeaway here?
7: You're right. This has been a wild day or a wild couple of days. I think the couple of things that we look at, first off, the payrolls report, Uh, I think that's enough, even though it was a bit mixed between the payrolls being higher than expected for the 10th straight month, while the unemployment rate rising was a negative and wage growth being a bit lower than expected. We think the Fed will still focus on the positive parts of that report so they can continue to raise rates, which is going to be a more difficult environment for financial assets. But on the point of the SVP uh, financial going into receivership, What really stuck out to us is we think this is going to cause banks to tighten lending standards even further than they already have. In January, uh, banks, 45% of banks reported that they were tightening lending standards to large and mid-market businesses. And historically, going back decades, when you see a percentage that high, you're either in a recession or heading into a recession. And if they're going to tighten standards even further to try and get their, their houses in order... That's going to slow down economic growth even further and make it harder for us to try and turn things around as an economy.
1: Hmm. Because, you know, it's interesting when you look at or when I look at least uh, SVB, I I just see a concentration risk that had to be number one on the risk factor for any investor or creditor there. And it, in fact, came home to roost. Um, I'm not sure if it's anything more than that
7: yeah we'd agree we don't think this is a systemic risk uh that was something that they clearly if you looked across the top two dozen banks in the country they had the most risk uh and really when you look at a bank when they're adding deposits at the rate that svb their deposit base tripled in two years from 2020 to 2022 Uh, and then they had to put all of that deposits into uh, uh, mortgage-backed securities and things that uh, have really fallen off They just were in a very difficult spot and did not handle it well. We don't think other banks are in as bad a shape, but I think it is going to cause uh, other bank CEOs to be more cautious and just make sure that they don't have the same risk. And the one thing they are fighting is we are seeing with large banks uh, that deposits have started to come down a little bit in recent quarters, and they're going to have to continue to raise the rates they're willing to pay customers on those deposits, which is going to cause further compression in their net interest margins. And then they're going to have to really try and manage their books with those uh, securities they own that are sitting on uh, losses that they haven't had to recognize yet uh, in the market. But it's just going to make it a difficult time for them to get through this period.
1: And Chance, I guess just, you know, 2022 was brutal for equity investors, for fixed income investors. There's no, you know, getting around that. 2023, it's kind of been up and down. Good January, bad February so far. In March kind of treading water a little bit. I mean, how do you think about putting – money to work in this market?
7: The first thing we noticed uh, with how strong the market opened in January this year for stocks, we didn't anticipate this, but you take the opportunities that the market gives you. We actually shifted more of our portfolio uh, for our clients' equity portfolios into defensive sectors like healthcare or gold royalty businesses, and we're starting to see consumer staples pull back a little bit there. Uh, we actually shifted more into that, which uh, is good to have a little bit more consistent cash flow businesses with great balance sheets on days like today and yesterday. So we think that's been the place in the equity market that we've kind of just been trying to make sure we retain some balance in the portfolios. But then more broadly, we're seeing a lot more opportunities for income investors that were not there in recent years, where you've got short-term treasuries were yielding up to 5%. And then you actually have some other investment-grade uh, securities, whether it's preferred stocks or REITs or MLPs, and even a few common stocks that are yielding 6 or 7%. And uh, as inflation continues to come down a little bit over the course of uh, the next few months, we think that'll actually be a decent way to maintain purchasing power while you wait to see what happens here uh, with the equity market and if some better opportunities pop up in the future.
1: So... You know, on the equity front here, I mean, one of the areas that had such a great run last year was energy. And I'm looking at WTI crude oil here; it's still seventy-six, seventy-seven dollars a barrel, kind of where it's been. Has that trade been played out, or is there more room to grow on energy?
7: We pulled back on our energy position uh, last year and are really just only invested in a few of the pipeline businesses where their cash flows are not dictated by the fluctuation in the oil price. So that's a better place to be with an energy right now. Uh, We think that, The problem they have is uh, their year-over-year comparisons, you're going to see their cash flows come down from the middle of last year, and especially with their cost inflation increasing. You saw that with the Devon Energy report last month, that the cost of labor, materials, everything's just shooting higher Mm -hmm. if you're an E&P company. And we think that might lead to some further deterioration in energy prices uh, just for cyclical reasons. We think investors have been trying to stay invested in the energy sector because they see the the structural opportunity because there's just not enough drilling right now uh, to bring new resources out of the ground. And that could lead to a recovery in the oil price. But right now, we think the economic slowdown is a bigger factor. And so we're maintaining some caution and just waiting for a better entry point. So
1: one of the sectors that has just been the leader The leader of this market for a decade-plus has been technology. But, you know, how do you think tech performs in a high-interest-rate environment? It really was a tough slog in 2022.
7: It was, and especially for some of those very high multiple, like, uh, you know, a high price-to-earnings ratio stocks or stocks that had no earnings, it was a really terrible year in 2022 just with interest rates rising and everyone wanted to start seeing free cash flow generated sooner rather than later. Uh, our advice would be to really focus on the companies that have uh, high profit margins and great balance sheets. So some of the more mature tech businesses that you think uh, can continue to generate consistent cash flow through this period, you know they'll be able to manage through things okay, wait for those types of businesses and buy them at valuations you think are attractive. We wouldn't advise trying to catch any of these uh, newer tech companies that still don't have any profits to report.
1: All right, Chance, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Always appreciate getting your perspective. Chance Fanukin, he's the CIO and a partner at Oxbow uh, Advisors, giving us his thoughts on these markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.